This is the Victory Podcast, and I'm your host, Monique Watson. This is another installment of our COVID-19 series. On this episode, I sat down with my sister, Nicole Krippel. She's a fourth-year medical student, and we talk a bit about her professional background, as well as some of the research that she's involved with now. We also talked about how viruses work, how especially this specific uh, COVID virus works, Additionally, we also talk about the implicit bias that exists in the medical community and how that has an effect on everything from medical decisions to clinical research. Let's listen in. So welcome to the Victory Podcast. I'm your host, Monique Watson, and I have the wonderful pleasure to have someone who I've known literally my whole life and her whole life, uh, Nicole Carpel. How are you doing, Nicole? I'm doing well. Doing really well. Trying to stay indoors more and enjoy this holiday season as best as I can. This is our first uh, Christmas that we haven't all been in, able to be in town in like a long time. So, Yeah, I think it's been like I was looking at, you know, Google and Google Photos will tell you like this time six years ago. I think six years ago was the last time we both weren't home. So for our listeners, yep. uh, Nicole is my sister, hundred uh, um, <laughs> percent. I mean, we haven't gone on Maury or anything to do a DNA test, but I'm I'm pretty confident that you're my sister. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, um, so just let me first give an outline um, to the folks listening. So how we're going to kind of go today. Um, so we'll learn a little bit about Nicole's background. Uh, some of her professional background, if you heard a little bit, is our personal background. Um, also, we'll be talking a bit, this is part of our COVID-19 series, so we'll talk a bit about um, viruses, which is what is the, the disease-causing agent of the COVID-19 um, illness. Talk a bit about viruses, how they work, um, information about the vaccine. Uh, Nicole will give us some try and uh, simplify a, a bit about the vaccines, how they work in general, um, and some of the current vaccines that are out for co- this COVID-19. And then, then we'll talk a bit about clinical trials. There's some questions that have come up in our earlier uh, COVID mini-series around the, the trials related to the vaccine um, and the, the diversity or lack thereof, and kind of talk about some of those challenges, both in this maybe that more apply on a greater scale um, and then implicit bias in the medical system. Um, A little bit about that and sort of what are certain things that you're doing as an individual um, and some programs that you're helping to put together and then uh, close us out with info and how you can stay in tune with uh, what Nicole is doing. So Nicole, tell the people, they don't know you like (laughs) I know you. So tell the people a little bit about yourself, some of your professional background, kind of what, Gotcha from from here to there. Okay. Um, so I am currently a fourth year medical student, although I am doing a year of research right now. Um, I go to Meharry Medical College, which is in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. It's a historically black medical school. And um, actually, our president, Dr. James Hildreth, he... Um, He's, he's actually an infectious disease specialist, so he's actually played a major role in Tennessee um, for for um, helping people and spread information about this pandemic and everything. 
Um, currently, I'm doing research at UT, UT uh, Memphis, and I'm doing some of my research is revolved around um, we have a COVID, like a droplet study and studying droplets and um, things like that. <clears throat> and uh, I have a, a project with uh, creating this diversity and inclusion program and um, other you know, little things that just pop up here and there. I'm working with the Department of Otolaryngology there, um, which is ear, nose, and throat. And so before that, I, you know, I have a background in biochemistry and molecular biology. My, that's where I got a master's in um, from Tulane University. And before that, I did something completely unrelated, which, uh, but did give me a great uh, chemistry background is at Georgia Tech, I got a degree in polymer and fiber engineering. So um, yeah, and oh, and also currently I'm uh, enrolled at Johns Hopkins in their uh, master's in healthcare systems engineering. And so that's a recent interest that I've also taken up because of the systemic changes that really need to happen in healthcare. Wow. That's a lot. I, I honestly, I mean, like I said, she's my sister, but I don't always know all the ins and outs of all that background. Um, so I think you're uh, uniquely qualified to talk about all the things we're going to talk about today um, from the different facets, right? Um, so let's talk first. I'm interested, uh, first off, um, so in, in your studies that you're currently like hot off the press research um, around the droplet study related to COVID. So are we are we analyzing the actual like droplet and what they're composed of from people's respiratory droplets, viral load, kind of what is that as much as you can share? I know that, you know, it's active research going on. Yeah, sure. So um, we have a joint project, University of Tennessee with the University of Memphis, that um, we are working with speech language pathologists. And it is actually studying the actual motion of droplets. Um, we're using laser technology to be able to detect um, the trajectories of, um, of uh, droplet spread and um, being able to measure the amounts with certain words and certain activities um, with your voice um, and singing and different things like that. And uh, from there, we'll probably pilot to a bunch of different um, looking at other things further. But right now we're just trying to get an idea of can we detect these droplets and um, what kind of, how many droplets come out when you are doing certain activities. So, yeah. Wow. I've uh, seen some similar research. Absolutely. Yeah, that sounds like very interesting. So we'll have to stay abreast of as that comes out. Um, okay, so let's talk a bit about, so we're uh, as we're recording this, FYI world, we are in the midst of a global pandemic. In case you've been on some remote island for the last <laughs> nine, 10 months, um, it's a whole thing. So um, let's talk a bit. So COVID-19 is is the disease for uh, that is created by SARS-CoV-2. Um, so SARS-CoV-2 virus, what do we know about viruses, this viruses, sort of how it work, how viruses work, right? Are they alive? There's some discussions in the lay world about whether viruses are really alive or not. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I can give like a brief kind of rundown about viruses. I think when people think about viruses, since we don't, we can't see them. People just think, okay, they're, they're, they're like bacteria. It's just a different type of thing, you know? 
And in a way, it's kind of similar. Um, viruses are technically um, not a, not considered life by the definition of life, meaning that they do not uh, replicate on demand autonomously. Like they don't have every single part of the machinery that's required to duplicate itself. And so that's why they say that they are technically not alive, but they, with their interaction in the environment, they are very, very, they're not dead either. (laughs) They um, immediately can can function um, as long as they stay in their environment that they're able to thrive in. There's two type viruses have two types of genetic material. Some of them have DNA, just like me and you have DNA, and some have um, what's called RNA, which is basically like DNA, but it's just single stranded instead of double stranded. And it's got a little bit of different shape, but we also have RNA. We just have RNA, for, we just have RNA that comes from DNA. And that is a whole process, and I can go into it. But <laughs> That is how we get the materials and the proteins and everything that our bodies make is from RNA, giving this set of instructions, if you will, to our body. And this this process happens, you know, all over all of our different cells. Um, they all have the uh, like our cell. If you remember basic biology, they have the nucleus in the middle, and that's where our DNA is. And then there's the cytoplasm, which is where all of our machinery is. So yeah, so when you, so we have our nucleus and we have the cytoplasm and that's where all of our machinery is. That's going to tell us what to make proteins, what to get rid of, telling us if there's damage, all of those different things. A lot of things happen in us in the cytoplasm of the cell, which is if you're looking at at an egg, it'd be like the egg whites. Um, The yolk would be like the nucleus. That's where all the genetic material is. With that being said, so this particular SARS-CoV-2 virus, its genetic material is made out of RNA. It also, because it does not have its own own machinery to replicate itself, it needs to live inside a certain type of cell. And what they do is when they enter our cells, they hijack our machinery. They hijack our like functions or whatever um, host animal, whatever. And they hijack their machinery so that they can get the proteins that they need to make more particles. And this is a cycle that starts where they just attach to the cell and then they um, trick the cell into what's like engulfing it basically and they go into this particular RNA viruses because coronavirus is an is an RNA virus. That's its genetic material. They replicate in the cytoplasm. This particular strand is immediately ready to start using our machinery without having to make any type of changes to itself or anything like that. So as soon as it enters, it can start hijacking our mach- the machinery of the cell in order to start making proteins, which give instructions for the viral particles. And then they put all in our, within our body, they'll make the proteins and then like put it all together and make new virus particles. And then those particles get released and then they infect new cells. And so you see how this cycle begins and how it can easily just invade cell after cell after cell after cell. So that's kind of viruses in general. And that's kind of this particular virus, right? And the and so when our bodies, we have a way though of kind of doing a check. Like our immune system kind of has a check on itself. And when when uh, periodically we have these things that um, basically present the stuff, the proteins that are in the cell, and they kind of like bring it up to the surface 
and let our immune system check it out. They're kind of doing like a, it's almost like a, like a TSA type check there. They have or surveillance type check. So while it's we like have a random immune, security check, yeah, random security screen. So they're, they would like just bring up a random protein. They're like, Hey, this is what we're making right now. They bring it up to the cell surface. And then your immune system says, is this self? Like, is this my normal proteins or are these proteins foreign to me? Are these proteins that like are like some type of foreign invader? And so that is how the body protects itself. And when it detects an invader and it bonds to it and it's like, I don't know you, but I'm going to remember you. I never forget a face is basically what they say. (laughs) And they start making, they start making what's called like antibodies and they, they send an alert and they're like, Hey, they basically put like bolo signs everywhere for like your whole, for your whole immune system. And bolo for those who don't watch all the criminal shows out there is be on the lookout. So your body is looking out. We saw this virus, you know, wanted dead or alive type thing. Right. And so once your body makes um, these, what's called memory cells or memory, yeah, memory cells, if they ever encounter this, you know, junk again, like this type of protein that has that structure, then they are going to immediately recognize it. This process in the body takes about... I would say roughly about 10 days um, to happen from the period of when, of when it recognizes it and it makes like the proteins to remember it and everything. Um, So it's not an instant process. We have another immune system that kind of just does generalized killing for that, for, for the uh, kind of our immediate responses that we have. So that's a little bit about our immune system and how they respond to viruses. You have any questions about any of those things? Or so let so let me just make sure to try and understand completely. So viruses aren't technically alive because they can't make themselves by themselves. They require to take over hostile takeover of our cells um, to replicate to then create more of themselves. Um, our body can kind of memorize what the what that virus looks like. It's like, oh, I've seen you before. And they, over a period, create these memory cells to, that way, if it comes in contact again, it can take it on and basically go after it to to eliminate it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And so, actually, if I, if I can interject, I also, I meant to say, you know, the viruses, they have different um, properties. Some viruses have to live in like a certain environment in order for them to even like maintain their structure and everything. And um, this particular virus is an enveloped virus. And so that envelope is like kind of a bad thing because it makes them really susceptible. Um, That envelope makes it so that they can't, they dry, they like dry out and then they will like die. (laughs) So like die in the in the in the um in the terms from functional of, sense yeah from being able to not be able to make itself anymore and so they're susceptible to drying and they're and things like that so that's why they have to live um, within a droplet in order to uh in order to maintain the ability to replicate itself whereas some viruses that are naked they can attach right away and they don't need to be in a droplet they can you know 
live on surfaces and things like that. So that is one good, or they can live in the air even, you know, and that's, so that's one advantage that's good with like coronavirus is that it requires a droplet. Whereas if it was something that was airborne when, and by airborne, meaning that it doesn't need to be in a droplet at all, then that would be like more, even worse. Challenging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. More challenging to control. Yep. So that, I think it's a good overview for folks. Of course, reach out to Monique at the Victory Podcast. Um, if you have questions, um, want more info, there's a lot of good information on CDC and WHO that kind of talk about viruses in general, um, as long as a number of other like peer-reviewed sources that I'll try and link in the show notes so people can have that information. Um, so, okay, so we have these viruses. People's immune systems are responding to them. Um, there's sort of been not much until you get to this sort of vaccine stage that we've now arrived that there is a credible vaccine and sort of maybe at a high level, we can talk a bit about, you know, how do vaccines work? Why are they important? And specifically, maybe if you know anything about these, either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines. Okay. So uh, as I mentioned, um, in order for a virus to come in and hijack the cell, it has there's an interaction that happens on the cell surface between the protein that is on the outside of a virus. And uh, they they connect with each other. They make a connection. and Between they your cell a, and the virus, right? Uh-huh. They okay. make a connection, and it kind of unlocks a key and says, hey, let me in. It tricks them into into thinking that uh, they're supposed to be in there. So these uh, cells enter that way. So all of these, all of the, um, the whole idea of vaccines and things like that are to, um, or these vaccines especially, are to stop that interaction from happening or and not allowing it from being able to to enter. So a lot of those types of solutions are going to be what is going to be our best like attempt at um, of having that interaction not be successful. And so they try to um, exploit things that are different from humans cells so that it can target things that like certain properties that are unique to viruses. Um, and so that's kind of the whole idea between any type of drug or vaccine targets is what is something that's unique to viruses so that when we're targeting it, we're not killing human cells also along the way, if possible. And this particular, um, so there's a few vaccine candidates out there, the ones that are approved right now, I can explain a very high level of, of basically how they work, if you would like. Um, yeah, I think it would be good just for folks to to kind of understand and I'll also share info. So if people kind of struggling visually to understand, we'll share the CDC info on it as well. But yeah, I think a good high level, like how does it work? Sure. So so what what this thing does is um, the vaccine is this particular type of vaccine. So traditionally, when people make vaccines, what they would do is they would like grow a virus, they'd have like, a, they'd start with a, like a virus sample and they would grow it in the lab. And then they would like, be like, okay, how do we grow a certain protein? And they tested and things like that. Right. And so they'd have to ha- start with the virus. It takes a lot of time to grow in the lab and to do like the right analysis and everything like that in order to do that. 
But what's really cool about this this particular technology used in these um, vaccine candidates that are approved right now, they actually use a part of um, they use the a part of the genetic material of a of the coronavirus. So that so RNA, RNA that we talked about, yep, the yeah. mRNA. And what they do is they just use the, the genetic material, they package it into a fat bubble. And it's a, they use a fat bubble because fat goes into cells easily. So they package the G- DNA of the virus, but only the part of, I mean, the RNA of the virus, but only the part of the virus that is responsible for like making that connection to the cell. So on the coronavirus, that's the spike protein. And the spike protein interacts with the cell. I think there's like maybe three or four different spots that it can interact with. And so they found all of those sequences and they just specifically to that, to those, packaged those together and then put it in a fat bubble. And then they have that enter the cell. So it almost looks like a fake virus almost, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's just like a fat bubble. And then it just has a, uh, has a piece of genetic material. So then once it, once it uh, goes into the cells in your body, what it does is it goes in and unpacks itself just like anything else would. And it goes through that genetic material, uses your machinery, like, and uses the machinery only in the cytoplasm. It's not using your DNA. It's only using the things that make protein, which are called ribosomes. So that that RNA sequence is going to be processed through your ribosomes in your cell. And they're going to make a protein, just that protein, the things that are in that RNA strand that we told them. It's not making a whole new virus. It's just making a protein on the virus very specific. And what it's going to do is how I told you how they present what's on the menu kind of thing, like, and they have them random security checks. So what's going to happen is that spike protein is going to be presented just because that's what the cells do. They are always presenting what they're processing. They are going to present that to the cell surface and it's going to force your immune system to be like, Hey, (laughs) you're not one of us. There's that jerk. Um, remember his <laughs> face. <laughs> There's that jerk. Remember his face. I'll never forget a face. And they start putting the bolo signs out. Essentially, that's kind of the whole. That's 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 the whole thing. You're you're just getting the cells in the body to make that protein, which the protein is completely harmless by itself. Um, it's making that protein. It's it presents it to the cell surface, and. Um, the cell is like, oh, hell no, we're going to make a, we're going to remember you and we're also going to kill you because there's two types of cells. They have the ones that kill and then they have the ones that, you know, tell you to make more of the immune cells. So they have two different types that get that up there. And so they're going to get killed too, because that's part of the job of your immune system. So, um, but in that, but in that period of time, so let's say you get the vaccine Remember I said it takes about 10 days for those cells to make. So um, that's where the body starts making those cells and then they'll keep making them, those memory cells, and then it'll keep making them and keep making them. And um, your body gets a chance to just get better and better and better at attaching it. So then when it's, so if it ever comes encounter with that, 
virus again, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, oh, I don't forget a face. And then your body immediately recognizes it and can respond, ex- respond um, right away. And the more times of the, um, the more times that, that the body's exposed, um, the better it is at responding or if you if, are, are exposed more than once. So that's why you have that second shot in there to give your body a chance to be exposed again. And it'll make even more cells. So that way, the delay um, between when the virus attaches and when it has the cells ready to act on it um, is like much, much shorter. So that's why that's what makes the vaccine effective is because it's able to act before the virus really gets a chance to start taking hold of the cells and before it gets the chance to start um, it needs to act before the before the um, virus does its thing and, and tricks people. <laughs> so um, people's cells. So yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell about how this particular vaccine works. Yeah, why um, why uh, or what what are you seeing? Because I know you've done some clinicals a bit and some different rotations, and sometimes even in your in your studies starting out, hesitancy around vaccines and sort of. What are you seeing there? And then if there's some, we've talked a bit on this show a bit about hesitancy specific to this um, vaccine, people's questions about it, the, you know, sort of some people's concerns center around the speed in which um, this was uh, created um, compared to normal vaccines or medicine kind of trials and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And secondly, if you have any comments there, if not, that's fine. Secondly, the um, the also lack of diversity um, in some of the clinical trials. We talked a bit about this with Dr. Bent, um, who you know is our aunt. <laughs> um, so we talked a bit about that. She had some some concerns of which she understood the challenges of that because of the, the for several reasons about lack of diversity and challenges there. So maybe we can talk a bit about um some of the concerns that you have heard, seen around vaccines, and even more so if you've heard anything specific to this vaccine as it comes out. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the the anti-vaccine effort in general has existed for a very long time. I mean, back to 1802, there is the anti-smallpox. Uh, that was the first cartoon that showed humans growing little parts of cows for if they got injected. Um, so there has been always a fear of the unknown, pretty much. Um, so even to now, there's, you know, there's a huge, very well-funded, very star-studded um, movement that is anti-vaccine. Um, and a lot of times these people... I don't, I can't quite talk about their intentions or whatever, but they use it, information that's not completely correct. Um, and I don't know if it's based on their limited understanding and things like that, but there's a lot of anti-vaccine messaging that is on the rise. Um, and there, that has a lot of, uh, a lot of support uh, from people, but a lot of it is not based entirely on the truth and they're based on um they're based on some things that are like very skewed or very poor studies (laughs) and things like that 
so I can't remember what was the second part about your question with the um, with this vaccine. Oh, with the oh the speed. Yeah, the speed in which it was. So one of the things that is that has come up, and they're like, "Heck no, I'm not taking this. It's only been so many months, and they already have a vaccine. It's already been tested. All of these things, right? And so that is something that comes up a lot. Um, The thing is that the technology for this vaccine is has been happening for. A, a very, it's been developed been developing for a very long time. Normally, to get the process of getting to a vaccine, it has a lot of. Um, there's like a stage where there's some there where they you know obviously make the the discovery of um, what is like the they, there's there's there are scientists out there that find viruses that can potentially infect people and cause problems, and they start doing. Um, they start doing research on what are some things that we can exploit? What are, what are our vaccine candidates? So there's a whole process in determining like specific vaccine candidates and what are good candidates, meaning like a good candidate is something that is unique to that virus. That's different from human cells that will, uh, and that will mount, that'll allow the body to mount a response against it. Something that that's going to be obvious enough for the body to pick up and, become uh, in mountain response uh, specific to the virus. And so there's initially, there's usually a lot of that. And so some of that's a lot of back and forth and they do a lot of analysis and things like that. But the good part, and then, and then, and then once they figure out what's the best one, they try to get funding. So they have to get funding. And a lot of times they have to um, get a lot of support from different investors and really kind of defend why this is the best candidate over another candidate. So there's a lot of that back and forth. Now, this process for the coronavirus has been happening for about almost 20 years, um, at least, because with um, even before SARS, but with SARS and MERS, this was a really big push. Um, and so SARS, so, just for context, SARS and MERS were earlier, like we saw, I think a lot of SARS in both Middle Eastern regions and Asia, China, some those parts of the yes. country. So SARS Similar was, sort of, go ahead. SARS is a, another coronavirus. So this, so this is SARS-CoV-2. Uh, that was SARS-CoV-1. Um, and that was back in Asia. And they had a lot of, um, they had a, a, an outbreak then. And, um, and so that was, that was one thing. And then, and then MERS is, was Middle Eastern. SARS stands for, um, what is it? Like severe acute respiratory syndrome. MERS is Middle East. And then MERS is Middle East respiratory syndrome. And so, um, so yeah, so that's what, um, and that's the, the worst case scenario for these coronaviruses. And so when SARS hit, um, people were scrambling then, um, and they were like, we need to get this under control. What are like the vaccine candidates? And so some candidates were actually presented way back then. And they figured out from there, like, what are the best ones if there's ever another coronavirus? Like, what is, what's going to be our target? Like, if this happens again, what's going to be our target? Like, what, what are the ones from our studies what, that we did then? What are the, what are going to be the things that are going to be the most effective for that? 
So, so this is, so with that information that they've known since SARS, once they isolated that, that whole process, that's usually the longest part of developing a vaccine of that back and forth, that was kind of like gone because they already knew when SARS, when coronavirus two hit, they already knew what they were going to be targeting. All they needed was for someone to isolate the DNA that is specific to that. And RNA, they, yeah. I mean, sorry, the RNA, the genetic material that is specific to, to that virus for that protein. They're like, okay, we want the spike protein. What part of the, of the RNA is for the spike protein? We will, we will duplicate that part of that and we will make it. And so once that technology was created, that was easy. And then the resources issue, I mean, obviously there's a pandemic, so (laughs) the money was flooding in. There's lots of people that they got a lot, they had like an all hands on deck type of approach. And because usually vaccine development happens in a series, right? And these steps happen in a series, but there was a lot of things that were able to happen at the same time because you had multiple hands on deck. Like you had a lot of infectious disease scientists abandoning their bread and butter research and directing their entire focus on this virus and like on creating things for this vaccine and developing these things. So you have the people doing the setting up the logistics and everything for the, um, for the, for the studies setting up, like they have people that design these, these, um, these trials to make sure that they are going to be effective and they're going to, you know, be valid type of studies. And so you have that going on while they're also growing the virus, the virus, I mean, not growing the virus, growing the, um, replicating the, the parts needed for this, this vaccine. So that, I mean, that just saves a tremendous amount of time and just having the money, you're not needing like to go back and impress like any type of donors, like the money's there already. And it's just, you'd just be surprised at how fast things happen when you have the money to get them done. Um, it really is a very quick process um, in order to, to, for the, it was a, a quick process for them to design the actual vaccine because they already knew what they were going to be designing um, before they went into it. They just were customizing it, if you will, to this virus. It's like, it's like um, having a prefab kind of house and then they um, customize the fixtures, if you will, for the house. So that cut down a lot of time. And then another thing that cut down a lot of time is that once they had knew that it was safe after the first data came out, the nation already had committed to like pre-ordering these vaccines. So once you start doing that, I mean, that that also cuts down a lot of time because they basically... They kept the most the important steps, which are the regulatory steps that are needed, but they cut a lot of the bureaucracy out, a lot of the back and forth that happens, and they streamlined a lot of those efforts so that they could do all of the, so that the bulk of the time that is needed to develop this vaccine was pretty much only focus, focusing on if it's going to be safe and effective, safety and, effect, and efficacy. So that was the that was like the bulk of what took the most time. And then everything else, they had it streamlined so that it's like, as soon as you can say go, it's ready. You got the orders filled, you got it, you know, it's it's in the pipeline. 
They have priority prioritization for the FDA to review. They have all of those things. They put all everything else on hold so that they could so that they could do this. So so understandably, this is why they are able to be so efficient and so quick to be able to uh, to develop that because um, these these trials actually um, they they're, they're just like any other trials. So the Pfizer vaccine trial was 43,931 people that were enrolled at 150 clinical sites in 39 states. The Moderna was 30,000 enrolled, 89 clinical sites in 32 states. And it's really, really, that's really, really important because the more people that are involved in a clinical trial, the more you can say that their results are valid because you've sampled more people. You've been able to, the larger the, the, the groups, then the, um, the more you can say that these findings are applicable to the general public. And that's also why um, the racial and ethnic distribution thing um, is important because people also want to be able to say that the studies are valid in all of the populations of the U.S. and not just certain populations because different people have different you know, properties about them. Some people have more severe disease of different cultures, different comorbidities, different things like that. But by race, socioeconomic status, all of these different things play a role in our overall health. And so they want to make sure that they do that. Now, one of the things that also comes up is people were like, oh, well, there weren't a lot of Black people in the studies. There weren't a lot of Hispanic people in the studies. There weren't a lot of this and that. And that's actually, that's actually false. So typically there is a very low amount of uh, people that of, from minority backgrounds that are involved in clinical trials. And this is very, very true. But for this one, there were so many partnerships that were developed that the actual racial and ethnic distribution of these studies um, very closely mirrors the general population of the United States. So for instance, the Pfizer vaccine, the racial distribution, 13% Hispanic, 10% African American, 6% Asian, 1% Native American, 45% of the participants were ages 56 to 85 years old. For Moderna, 20% were Hispanic, 10% were African American, 4% were Asian, and 3% were all other races. And then 64% were ages 45 and older. So it's really good because even though, yes, the minorities, I mean, there was they were all majority of the people were white, but the makeup, the representation mirrors that of our population. So that is a good thing because that is something that is showing that there was some t- amount of diversity that is expected that's rep- that we're everybody was pretty equally represented as far as per capita, per population that exists in the United States. Now, do we have any, you mentioned about comorbidities and Dr. Bent talked about it in part one of our series about, you know, things like, you know, respiratory disease, kidney disease. I'm just going to use general, like, you know, organ system diseases, not to get too granular. Um, Do we know anything or have you able to find about the percentage of folks of those studied, I don't know if this information is out there, so the answer could be we don't know. But 
how many, if any, of those folks also had some of those comorbid- comorbidities? Um, I'd have to look up the actual, what was the inclusion and exclusion criteria. I do know that one of the things that was excluded were pregnant women and, um, people who have experienced any type of anaphylaxis, which is like a severe allergic reaction that requires an EpiPen, um, for any type of like drugs or anything like that. So they are excluded people like that because they wanted to make sure that they didn't, that they didn't um, trigger, you know, something and, and they could really isolate, um, they could really isolate that. They actually are starting to, um, I know they're starting to focus on like certain comorbidities and things like that, but I think that it was a lot of people just in the general population. And as long as you weren't, as long as you weren't like, I think, immune compromised, or if you didn't have anything that would actually like something to where like your immune system doesn't work. So they can't like really test the efficacy because your Mm -hmm. immune system's broken. I think Mm -hmm. for the most part, and I can double check um, all of the, all of the clinical trials, even if they're closed, they're available on clinicaltrials.gov. And so you can actually look up the different criteria for that. But from my understanding, they, they were, as long as it was deemed a safe, um, safe for them to participate. Um, like as in they didn't have any type of, um, you know, really, really huge issues, then I think they were allowed to participate, but I don't want to misspeak. So you were talking also about side effects and, um, some of the questions that sometimes come, comes up, I think is, um, you know, if they've either had COVID already and got over it, sort of some of those things, some of the as compared to side effects from the vaccine itself and some of that, what are we learning about the kind of like long COVID or post COVID effects? Um, if people are like, I'll just get COVID and, and beat it and be fine. Yes. So uh, one of the things that that's a really good point is, and it's a very, you know, it's a, when you're evaluating, you're like, whether you, you want to get the vaccine and things like that, like that's a really valid uh, thing to wonder about. Um, and I will say that, having COVID is so unpredictable. There is, this virus is so, for it to be such a simple virus, it's so freaking smart because it can infect so many ways that like, you really can't tell, um, you really can't tell like, like what you're going to have. You don't know if it's going to be severe. You don't know if it's not. It really just kind of varies from person to person. And a lot of it has to do with how much you've been infected with the virus, like the load of the virus that you're taking in and how fast it takes, how long it takes for like your body to build up enough immune cells. And, um, you know, basically can it play catch up because, um, so, and that's, that's another thing I guess to bring up really quickly is that people, um, talk about like not wearing masks and things like that. And, you know, even people like, oh, masks don't work, but there's a minimum infectious dose that has to happen with COVID. And it's pretty low for COVID. I think it's only like 10 particles. But if you can reduce the number of particles that you take in, um, the virus replicates on a certain timeline, right? And so if you start with a lower number to begin with, and so there's fewer particles in your body um, by the time 
it like your immune system sees it and everything and, and, and you have cells for it. Whereas if you start off with like a hundred viral particles or you get in your, or you go to the store, you get infected by one person, you get infected by another person, you get infected all around. One of the things that people don't really appreciate is that, you know, it's one thing to get infected by one person, but if you get infected by like 10 people, that's just a bigger load of virus that you're carrying. So that's even more catching up that your body has to do. And if it can't catch up in time, what's going to happen is your body's going to be like, oh, shoot, like time to go into overdrive. And it's going to release everything that it's got. And a lot of these these complications are related to what's called a cytokine storm, where the body is is basically grabbing for straws and it's just going to release everything that it has. And that is what kills people with covid and there's also, there's some other things that are happening too with um, with when you actually get infected. Let's say that your body does catch up and it does mount a immune response and, and, you know, you beat the virus and things like that, but you had, you were infected with the entire virus. So all of the components of the virus, so different types of parts of the virus were, um, were presented to uh, the to the T cells in your body to your immune system, and so your, to your TSA checkpoint. That's the T yeah, cells. Yeah, to your TSA. Like, hey. <laughs> exactly. So you had different parts of the um, virus that were presented to your immune system, and no control over what parts of the virus were control were brought up or anything like that. And so you, so, so the things that your body gets a, like makes the memory cells to, um, they can just vary a lot more. And some of those things may have like too, um, too much of a similarity in structure to like existing things in our body. So sometimes that can, you know, like that's how some people end up having like these like autoimmune types of problem and things like that, because maybe something that the memory made a memory against resembled a, a too similarly to like a tissue that's in our body. And so mm-hmm. there's, there's things like that. Like that's a theory that like can be, um, or related to that. And so I think that, I think that it's something to really consider is that you, you, it's individ, it's very individual and it comes down to your immune system. And the fact that because this is a virus, that so like the same thing like people are like oh well, I get a flu shot I don't get a flu shot and I'm fine so there's a difference between just like there's a difference between seasonal flu and like a pandemic flu there's a difference between seasonal COVID because there's COVID that flies around normally I mean not COVID there's coronavirus that fly, that um, that flies around normally and just causes a common cold and there's this coronavirus okay. And the difference is, is that when a virus like this one and like certain flus, like in the Spanish flu, when, you, when it's a virus that is not usually uh, uh, infecting humans and they gain the ability to infect humans for the very first time, the body, the humans do not have a way to have any like mild type of way to respond to it. So it's very, very devastating versus if it were a coronavirus strain that normally infects humans, then it's, it would be fine. Like it, we're the natural host and it's adapted and it's less of like a toxic, like you would get sick, but you would just have like a common cold. Same thing with the flu. 
Like you would have some people that have a level of immunity to it. No person is immune, has any level baseline level of immunity to this strain because this has never been in humans before. Just like no person had immunity to the swine flu because it was from a pig before. So it's the same, um, it's the same type of deal. And when you don't have um, any type of baseline immunity, that's what it takes a lot longer for those cells to be developed because it's starting from scratch. You know, it's like making pancakes from scratch versus Bisquick or something like that. And so it takes a little bit longer and the immune system doesn't have as much practice with a similar enough particle to buy, be able to readily identify it as much, even though it's very good, but it, it takes a little bit longer. Like, so that's why it's really important to really um, consider like the fact that it really depends on how much, inf- how much of the virus you're getting infected with at a time and, and your immune system response. Um, and, pe- and that's why it's not just elderly people that can die from it, you know, and it's mm-hmm. not just immune compromised. It's just that it happens that elderly people, you know, everything moves slower in elderly people in immune compromised people, their immune system is suppressed. So it takes them longer to build those cells. So that is why they're more susceptible. But if you are so far behind to begin with, it, even if your body does build the cells, it's, it, it's too far behind, you know? So you really want to limit the amount of viral load. That's why some of these doctors would die that were very healthy because they get infected multiple times by multiple patients, different things like that. So mm-hmm. it, it really does matter. Like it's not just an, you get an infection and that's it. Like the, the quantity of it also matters. It matters what tissues it's invading and it matters all of those things. And so that's something that people need to understand. Um, and it can affect multiple systems. It if does affect clotting because your body goes into this like inflammatory state. And when it, when you're in this inflammatory state, you are more susceptible to clotting because your body thinks there's a bobo somewhere <laughs> and it needs to clot and things like that. So problems associated with actually having the infection and that type of response and the damage that virus is like hijacking of your machinery um, that related to there, there being so many particles hijacking at the same time and things like that. Um, all of those types of side effects are, 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 are huge problems. And there's no, there's no way to control that is much worse, <laughs> much more grim from the vaccine than any vaccine. That's just something that I wanted to just also make very, very clear that even if you don't die and, and even if you don't die from COVID, there are long-term effects that you have less control over than with a vaccine. Cause with a vaccine, they have already parsed out like this is the best candidate because of the low risk of it being similar to something in your body, like because of all of these different properties of it, because of the ability of the immune system to, to mount a strong response against it, things like that. They've already basically prioritized the best component of the virus for your body to learn and everything. So you have a lot of quality control. So there are fewer side effects. Any other side effects that have to do with the vaccine are, are that are unique to the vaccine are all, only short-term things or, or related to an allergy. 
And so that, and that's why they made this vaccine very, very clean. And it's actually probably going to serve a model on upon which um, other types of vaccines can also be developed and refined for. Yeah, no, no that makes sense. Um, so maybe we can talk at a greater sense. Um, and you've done some work and study and some courses around some of the challenges in general in clinical research, whether it be trials or otherwise, but clinical research and, and getting um, a diverse population. What are some of the things either from the course you were taking um, about this or that that seem to be some issues? And then if there's some, you know, people designing clinical trials or thinking about participating in one the next time when this is all over and they go to the doctor and someone says, hey, we'd like you to participate in X, Y, and Z. What are some of the things that you're seeing there as to why um, they run into issues in, in uh, having enough visible diversity or diverse populations within their clinical studies, whether there be your droplet study or what have you. And what are, if, if there's any tips and tricks that you've learned um, as far as what people in that field could do to, to better, to make things better for folks, to make them more likely to participate, if there's anything that they could do. Uh, I got you. So in general, the clinical trial participation, one in five clinical trials um, actually end early for failed um, participation, or they complete with less than 85% of their targeted enrollment. And so this is a bad, this can be a bad thing because that means that it lowers the power of your studies, meaning that you have a more limited understanding of what are some factors that might have uh, taken a role to influence the outcome that you have? Um, like, um, yeah, so there's certain confounding factors like that. Um, there, that means that you, there's more limited information about the safety and effectiveness um, across different populations, like meaning, is this applicable to different populations? And if it doesn't meet the standards, as they are minimum standards, um, that are in place for um, for something to be considered for a drug. Um, so if they don't meet those minimum standards, then like the, there's fewer drugs and devices that get discovered. And so it's a whole snowball effect. Now, one of the challenges that people do have very low in certain groups is what they've noticed, um, particularly uh, racial and ethnic minority groups. Um, rural living groups, um, older adults, and people of a lower socioeconomic status. The racial component is actually very important because by 2045, uh, it's expected that uh, less than half of the U.S. population will be white or Caucasian. So um, that's a problem. <laughs> So some of the things that come go into why uh, people don't uh, people don't participate is uh, centered around a concept called implicit bias, which we can go into a whole other time. We can have a whole other discussion on, but implicit bias is something that creeps into clinical decision making, and a lot of people don't won't offer the patient of uh, certain populations to participate. Um, they'll assume that they're not they're, they're going to say no or different things like that. So there's that's one area. Um, 
But when they are offered, when minorities are offered the um, inadequate invitation or the opportunity, there are a number of barriers that have been determined that kind of continuously come up um, as for why they choose not to participate in uh, recruitment of, of uh, or in being in uh, the clinical trials. One of them is has to do with some of like the proximity to clinical trials. So the access to the research institutes. Um, if you think about some people aren't even, don't even have a primary care doctor, don't even have health insurance. So then they're less likely to be around like an institute that's doing that type of research to even be offered the clinical trial or their, or if they might live too far away from where the trial is taking place. Um, some of the things um, is just the consent forms can be very intimidating for some people that either they can't have a, very, a lower reading level or they it might not be in their um, primary language that they speak. Um, they might have these some of these consent forms um, have a lot of medical jargon in them. And they're just way too long. So it's just very intimidating for a lot of people. And other people um, have trouble with like transportation. So, you know, if you have to take public transportation or you don't have reliable transportation, then you're definitely not going to go out of your way (laughs) to try to um, like get to a clinical trial. But then there's also other things that that it related to why people don't participate is there's there's something that people don't realize is that there's there's a you get compensated to be in clinical trials, but there's still a cost associated with being in them. Like if you have to take off time from work, then you're losing wages. Like, so that's some people in, in certain groups of people in minority populations tend to work in like hourly wage type places where you don't get paid time off. So anytime you're choosing to request time off of work, then you're losing money. Or like if you have to arrange childcare, like those things are all deterrents for people. Or if you're sick and you have to withhold other treatments, or, you know, like I said, for certain studies, every study has eligibility criteria and there's certain types of comorbidities or, you know, pre-existing conditions, basically, that make it more challenging for diverse groups of people um, to participate where certain diseases are heavily prevalent. So these things kind of all um, go into it along with just the awareness. So p- unawareness of opportunities or unaware of why participating in clinical trials are important um, and language barriers or inadequate explanation um, or time to process information. I think certain populations that are hesitant, it's just, they they really just need time to like digest the information. It's a lot of information at once and people really just need to understand before they can comfortably make a decision. So those are types of things that, you know, are a problem, you know, but even if they do, if there are those things, there's also a, a lot of things that sur- that are surrounded itself around trust. There's a lot of mistrust. Um, mm-hmm. And that is, completely warrant like it's completely warranted <laughs> like you know especially in certain groups you know you always hear about Tuskegee syphilis study um so that that's american that's uh, like you know with african americans specifically having um you know being abused there's the guatemala syphilis experiment so that is hispanic being abused um 
Henrietta Lacks a lot is a big thing. That's um, that if, if there's a whole book as a movie now, and it's like the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. Henrietta Lacks was a woman who had cervical cancer and her, they took samples of her cancer cells that were dividing and dividing and dividing. And they used that for research and the research has lived on. It's been, it's been, you know, they've used those cell lines for countless, countless discoveries and things like that. And the family never even was told that they were taking her cells for research and they never even have compensated her or anything. It's a very tragic study. And then there's, you know, there's a there's study, there's the Havasupai, I'm sorry for mispronouncing it, um, the Native Americans, Indians. And there's also been some some other types of just historical abuses. So there's every minority group has pretty much been abused in some kind of way by science. But I guess the light of the tunnel is that when these abuses did happen and are um, discovered, they have they've led to um, new guidelines putting put in place to protect populations from being abused. So I think the biggest thing though is 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 people need to understand that people are weary of these things for a reason. There's also a lot of misinformation that's out there. And so there's a lot of concerns and issues around trust. And so science really has to work hard to build the trust of individuals and, and help um, people to become um, aware and to be transparent of these things and, 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 and have the appropriate amount of incentive and make it easier for people to participate. Absolutely. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a problem. So some of the things that people are trying to do to increase um, minority participation and participation overall is to um, foster these like relationships with people in the community, because if you, they, people might not trust science, but people, might trust certain individuals. And so if you can form a relationship with the community, then that can really help um, help with trust. But you have to also show that, you have to show the people in the community, like you have to be vetted by them. Like you can't just be like, oh, it's gonna be fine. Like you really need to have a true partnership and really show like a commitment um, to to the po- to this population and, and really kind of do some convincing there um, but I think that adds like an extra layer of protection for um, the community as well. Um, also, um, there's just more, just better materials and strategies. I think that a lot of times people are trying to like basically remarket things because before these like things do not make you want to participate because they'll just be like a random words <laughs> on a page. And as far it doesn't as consent look forms and things like that. Well, as far as like, even like flyers and posters, like you might see like a random flyer, like, okay, this looks sketchy. Like it's not, you know, something that's going to have people do that. But yeah, but then also having more methods for, for, um, for these consent types of documents, like having them in different languages and having um, people explain it and then teach it, have the person teach it back to you to try to, so that they can demonstrate your, their understanding. So I'll tell you about something and then the patient would then teach it back to me so that I understand that, that they understand just kind of how we were talking about with the, with the viruses. And you kind of told me your understanding and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And then also just like making it easier to participate, like having it available during like after work hours or offering childcare and things like that, or offering transportation. And um, also just around the staff, making sure that staff, you're staffing people that are developing these trials, people that are in working and administering these trials, that they represent people in the population that you're that you're um, trying to get to participate. Um, this is also the importance of why um, there needs to be more diverse, more diversity in um, healthcare and, and especially in, do- in as doctors and things like that, because you, uh, the implicit bias that sets in, people might not even think of a study that of coming with an idea of a study of something they want to study because they might not realize that it's an issue because they have these blind spots and they don't realize that like, oh, African-Americans might deal with this differently. So there's different things like that that all, you know, play a role. And so it's really our, our job to really um, become educated and to make sure meet my role as a as a physician uh, in training and all of these things as a scientist is to really make sure that people do understand because under without that understanding, that's where the fear sets in. Like when you don't understand, that's where the fear comes in. And I think that people need to be compassionate with people that, um, I mean, obviously there are some people that do purposely almost it seems like on purpose so in misinformation and to try to cause discourse but a lot of it is people that are trying to be well-meaning people are really trying to figure out what's best for themselves and trying to people are trying to weigh in like okay um is it better for me to just get this or should I or should I risk the side effects of this vaccine and things like that when um when, when, you know, like people, people don't want the cure to be worse than the actual, than the actual, um, disease itself. So, absolutely. and actually we didn't get to talk about, um, the side effects and things like that of the, Oh yeah. For let's talk, let's talk quickly about that. Yeah. So, side effects. What, so yeah. So as far as the side effects for these vaccine, um, they are they're very um they're they're very typical of any vaccine um so typically around the d- day 2 some people on day 1 but it's usually around day 2 or 3 the majority of people had um whatever side effects that they were going to be and pretty much all of the side effects resolved like the side effects were almost non-existent and these side effects were things like that basically tell you that your immune system is working because it's they're signs of, of an immune response. So they would be fever, um, fatigue, and you get the fatigue because your body's putting in some extra work <laughs> to try to make these new cells. Body's putting in work. All right. <laughs> um, headaches um, because your body, your blood vessels might be expanding to allow more cells to come through faster because they're packaging these new cells. Um, so that can cause some pressure and headaches, chills, all of those different things that are related to your changing body temperature, muscle pain, joint pain, all of those types of things that can happen. The most common effect is fatigue. You just feel a little bit run down and, um, you know, you feel a little bit uh, just kind of like sick. But that's, that usually lasted, let's see, on this chart about just like a day, usually get over it in a day. So um, the most common like 
immediate type of thing is uh, redness or swelling or pain at the injection site. So, I mean, that's just one of those things that can happen. These are very favorable. These are, this is not unique to uh, any vaccine and everything. And as, and some people also um, bring up, um, you know, like maybe they're not allergic to vaccines in general, but they're allergic. Maybe they're, they're afraid that maybe they're allergic to something that is in the vaccines. People, one of the things that comes up as a misinformation is like, oh, well, there's mercury in vaccines or, oh, there's different things like that. Um, aside from the fact that there, this is a falsehood, this particular vaccine actually has no preservatives whatsoever. That's why it has to be stored in these crazy cold, like freezers, because they're, there's, they're preservative free. Um, like I said, they are literally a, a bubble of fat with the mRNA, um, that goes with the spike protein. And so any, uh, the only types of things are there's, there's actually a list of Pfizer has their list online, but they're, they're just lipids which are different types of things. Um, one pe- some people, if you're allergic to polyethylene glycol, you might have an issue, but it's just cholesterol and a bunch of different little fats. And then um, there's some things called buffers that your body deals with on a regular basis. There's nothing crazy about it, but that's all. Like there's nothing extra in the vaccine. Like it's just, and they did that on purpose because they wanted to make sure if they're measuring efficacy, that like there's the least amount of other things in the way that could get that could get like that could interfere. And so um, they really wanted to make sure it was a very clean vaccine so that if any adjustments needed to be made, they knew exactly what to make adjustments to. So I think that's important to also be made aware of. Absolutely. Last thing, and I'll let you go to go about your studying, Nicole's studying for the boards. So um, we want her to be the future medical leaders of America so we can see her as the next Sanjay Gupta on CNN. So we won't keep you too much longer, but last question and sort of topic, and I know this is a bit of a doozy um, and we'll spend the appropriate amount of time on it. Um, you mentioned some work that you're doing and we've talked a bit about some implicit biases related to clinical trials and implicit bias that exists, um, unfortunately, in the medical system and really at the, in the community at large, right? We all have biases. Um, regardless of our backgrounds and what have you. Um, let's talk a bit about some of the work you're doing on. There's a program you're developing or some implicit bias training that's going into development. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yes. So I have been charged with um, <laughs> the re- the project that I'm working on at UT is um, so- something that has gone with the, um, the, the department's real push for trying to increase the amount of, um, of, of diversity and inclusion and just really creating a culture of, of that um, diversity at UT and just what can be done, um, especially within the field of ear, nose and throat to increase um, my, like the number of minority um, surgeons and things like that. So UT is university of Tennessee. Just to, yes. There's a lot yes, of that, UTs. That out there. T, <laughs> that T university yeah. um, of Tennessee and so I am working with them to to create a program um, that we 
we we kind of have this this uh, implicit bias training that's going to be some sessions that we have, but then also like this on demand type of training that uh, is available online. And it kind of revolves around this uh, process of understanding implicit bias and its impact on healthcare. Because um, I guess similar to like your immune system, like everyone has bias, right? Bias is something that um, it's a human evolutionary thing. It's a survival instinct um, that humans have. The problem with bias is that if you allow bias to have undue influence on your um, on your like decisions or how you interact with people and um, and especially in healthcare, like how you treat people or what you diagnose them with and how you perceive things like their pain, if you allow those things to creep into that, then, that can lead to um, adverse outcomes that can lead to uh, very unfortunate things that happen in the community, which add to the whole mistrust and everything like that. So um, once people, so the goal is to have people um, become aware of what bias is and how it can have an impact in medicine in patient care in general, um, in research, in all of these areas of healthcare, and also for people to really become aware of their own biases by taking the um, implicit bias association test that's offered by Harvard. Um, There's a number of other um, resources that are out there. And just to understand your biases, because you really have to understand bias and what, why bias happens and what your biases are before you can work to combat them. And so the, it's it's kind of um, similar. And, and the way I like to think of bias, the whole thing is is so if we were just talking about the immune system, right? Um, it's bias is a survival instinct, just like our immune system is a survival instinct, right? It's a survival evolutionary thing. It protects us, but sometimes your immune system gets it wrong. That's why they have autoimmune diseases. So it, it's kind of like the immune system's good, but too much, or applying the immune system in the wrong setting or applying your immune system um, in, in a way that's not meant to be applied, then that can cause like, a, you know, negative side effects, right? And so um, the way bias plays a role, you really have to understand the background and how bias works and everything like that and be aware of your biases and things like that. Because you have to understand the actual like process, like what's going wrong. Um, in order yeah, what's to have your immune system doing, right? Yes. So it's the same thing with bias training is really understanding and getting to the meat of it. Otherwise, um, and so that's what's going to be the difference between uh, creating a solution that is like symptom based only versus having a solution that is that treats the underlying cause. And so that's the whole goal with this training is to have people be able to be equipped to have what um, what's needed to uh, treat the underlying causes of bias being having an undue influence in medicine. And so those are, those are kind of the things that we're going to be targeting. Awesome. Fantastic work coming down the pike from one of our future medical leaders of America. I'm speaking that into existence. I don't care what anybody says. (laughs) Don't let them tell you nothing different. 
Um, so thank you so much, Nicole. Um, is there anything else you want to say? Any, I don't know if you want to open up your social media so people can get in touch with you if they're interested, if they have questions or if not, that's okay too. Uh, yes, I did want to say, please, please, please wear a mask. We talked about vaccines on the way. If you wear a mask, you're stopping the droplet. And if you stop the droplet, then you stop the virus. So the whole idea is we want to limit those droplets. Okay, so please wear a mask. Please wash your hands. Please do not enter. Do not allow points of entry for the virus um, for yourself and other people. So I just really plead that you please wear a mask until everyone is vaccinated, even if you've been vaccinated, because there's a chance that you can you might still carry it transiently, or, or they don't particularly know. And that's what the the more studies are going to be. Um, trying to determine. Um, so yes, that's the other thing. If you want to follow me on social media, um, I'm on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is student doc underscore Cole, C O L E. And my Instagram is Cole's Krippel, C O L E S C R E P P E. L. Okay, I'll be sure to include that in the show notes so people can just link right to it and follow you. Lots of good <laughs> um, practical um, medical information. I think the best thing about, I used your information when I was on that interview with WBOK. The uh, easiest thing, if anybody asks you how vaccines work, it's like how you wish you could take every test in, in college. They give you the answers <laughs> first, and then you go in there and you're ready. So, yeah. uh, it's like awesome. there's a test coming up. There's These a test are coming the up. These are said all test. of the answers. <laughs> yes. Take the same test. Yeah. That's a cheating vaccine. in high school, but that's your immune system in life. <laughs> right. Exactly. Any other situation, it'd be cheating. But in vaccines, it is completely appropriate and necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Nicole for joining us and really kind of delving deep into those issues and really explaining, um, I think, in, in great detail in a really digestible way about viruses and vaccines and all of that good information. So, of course, check the show notes below. You can check out her social media. Stay in tune. She posts a lot of great tweets and information that really is a informative information. So please check that out. Please share this podcast with your friends and even your enemies. Um, you can find us at thevictorypodcast.com. There you can find all of the this episode and previous episodes. Check out the Where to Listen page on there so you can find wherever you want to listen to podcasts on whatever platforms are out there. We're pretty much everywhere. Um, of course, you can also support the Victory Podcast in a couple of ways. You can come become a Patreon on our Patreon page, which is also linked through the victorypodcast.com, Patreon slash merch page. And as well, you can buy merchandise, t-shirts, buttons, stickers, all kinds of great stuff. Even though the holidays are wrapping up, it's still a good time to get something for your loved ones and support um, an independent podcast. So I'll end this episode as I end every episode. Every problem has a solution. It's whether you're willing to do the work to find it. Let's do the work and be victorious.